BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On the Science Revolution this week, Donald Trump has tested positive for COVID-19. What does that mean for America? Dr. Michael Mann is here on Greenland and how it's set to lose more ice than in the past 12,000 years. This is a climate disaster. Gene Ross from National Nurses United drops by about the widespread failure to track and report data on COVID-19 deaths, testing, and infections. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear joins me. Will New Mexico be getting a radioactive waste dump? And in geeky science, an awe walk, A-W-E, an awe walk may do wonders for all of us right now. Stay tuned. Greenland is set to lose more ice than in the past 12,000 years. 12,000 years ago, humans were living in a very different way on this planet. This new study, it's startling. Dr. Michael Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology and the Director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of numerous books, including The Madhouse Effect and recipient of the Tyler Prize. Michael Mann with two N's. .net is his website, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, welcome back. Tell us about this study. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Always good to be with you, my friend. Well, you know, this is the latest bad news, but to be honest, it's not that surprising based on what we already knew. We knew things were pretty bad. Two summers ago in July, enough ice melted from the surface of the Greenland ice sheet that over that one-month period, you would be able to see the rise in global sea level from that. Human eye would have been able to see the rise in global sea level from one month of melt from Greenland, about a half a centimeter. Sounds small, but we could actually perceptively see sea level increase. And we are decades ahead of where we expected to be, given the model predictions from, say, a decade or so ago. We didn't expect to be seeing the collapse of large parts of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheet for decades. But over the last several years, what we've seen through a variety of measurements, direct in-situ measurements, satellite images, we can detect the changes in gravity owing to the melting of the ice. They all point towards the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheet losing substantial ice already, enough so that our sea level rise projections have gone from Let's say 15 years ago, we were talking about a foot by the end of the century. Now we're talking six to eight feet and maybe more than that. And so what this study does is it just puts all of that information in context. They use climate models to estimate how the variations in ice sheet mass, you know, what those variations were in the past. We don't have direct measurements of that melting ice from Greenland and West Antarctica. We do have some ice core measurements that help give us some information about what was going on. And so what they did is to run climate models with ice sheet models that know something about the information provided from actual ice cores to give us a history of how ice melt varied over the past you know, 12,000 years. And there is no precedent for what we're seeing now. I hate to say it, it's another hockey stick, just like our hockey stick curve for two 
from two decades ago that showed the anomalous nature of recent warming. They produced a hockey stick that shows just how anomalous this rate of melt is already. And if we continue on the course that we're on, then indeed we're looking at substantially greater amounts of melt than we expected to see at this point. And so all of the evidence is coming together. This study provides us context to see that what's happening right now is not normal. It's not part of the natural variability of the climate system. It's completely anomalous. To be explicit, I'm guessing the vast majority of people watching or listening to us right now know well the cause of this. But for those who may still be uninformed, why is this happening? Yeah, and and that includes our president, unfortunately, who just the other day conceded, to my knowledge, for the first time that climate change might be having some role. Well, in fact, climate change, human-caused climate change, carbon emissions from fossil fuel burning and other human activities are responsible for all of the warming that we've seen. That's what the models tell us. And the impacts that we are seeing play out in the form of unprecedented hurricane season back east, an unprecedented fire season out west, and as we see with this latest study, unprecedented amounts of melting from the ice sheets that are very troubling, because what that means is we've already locked in several more feet of global sea level rise. We're going to have to deal with that in the best case scenario. In the worst case scenario, we're trying to look at the literal inundation of millions of people around the world from sea level rise if we don't get our act together. I saw on Facebook the other day that this is actually being caused by sunspots and the sun is more active than normal and the earth has a normal change in its orbit where it gets closer to the sun and farther away from the sun periodically and that's what's causing all this and we should all just you know this is just natural stuff it might be tough might be difficult but hey 12,000 years ago something like this was going on that's natural we weren't burning fossil fuels back then and we heard sort of a version of that from the president the other day where he dismissed the linkage for example with the wildfires between climate change and the wildfires uh, dismissing it as i guess we don't have enough rakes to rake the leaves that's still his framing of this very obvious and, and, and detrimental climate change impact but in terms of natural factors if you take those same climate models that i was talking about and you drive them just with the natural factors, solar fluctuations, volcanic eruptions, etc. the models tell us we should have cooled over the past few decades. Natural factors were temporarily pushing us in the direction of cooling, and we've warmed as much as we have in spite of that. So if you really want to know how much of the warming we are responsible for, it's more than 100%, because natural factors, if anything, have actually offset a little bit of the human-caused warming. I've also seen stories recently that the Arctic is now on fire, that there are fires up in the Arctic that are burning continuously, like the old peat fires, you know, of lore, and that in Antarctica, one of the major ice shelves, or one of the more major glaciers, I guess, on land, is fixing to break loose. Are the polar regions in crisis? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the truth is bad enough. Everything you've described, those are simply the facts. We're seeing accelerated collapse of ice shelves, off Antarctica, and that's allowing the Antarctic ice sheet to start to melt and contribute to sea level rise faster than we would have expected. The same thing in Greenland, as we've already discussed. So they're already contributing to sea level rise decades ahead of schedule relative to what we were predicting, say, a decade to two decades ago. And wildfires from the Amazon all the way up to the Arctic. As I've said before, it's not rocket science. You make things hotter, You make summers in particular drier, 
you're going to get more fuel, more intense, more damaging, more extensive wildfires, and we're seeing it happen right now. And it's all because we're burning fossil fuels, period, full stop. No Is question about it, Tom. Yeah. Great. No question about it. Professor Tom. Michael Mann, thank you so much for dropping by, Professor. Great talking with you, as always. Thank you. Michael Mann with two ends.net is his website. This. The president and first lady have been diagnosed with the COVID virus, as has Senator Mike Lee, one of the Republicans who will be necessary for the Senate to get Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. It's all getting very, very, very interesting. In some ways, I suppose, kind of confusing. Kelly Loeffler the Republican senator from Georgia tweeted out that China is responsible for Donald Trump getting the coronavirus. There are other countries, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, where in the entire country over the entire last year, they've only had a few dozen or a few hundred deaths. No active cases that I know of, no active spreading going on right now, for example, in New Zealand. I mean, leadership matters. And I retweeted Kelly Loeffler's tweet blaming China and pointed out that irresponsibility is the Republican brand. I mean, basically, never take responsibility for anything. This is their worldview. I'm expecting to hear more of this, you know, that the Republicans are going to try and spin this around to say, we're the victims of China. Well, yeah, you know, the the Chinese could have handled this better in the early stages. We could have handled it better once we knew what it was. And by the way, we knew what it was in December of last year. In fact, in the last week of November of last year, U.S. intelligence notified Israeli intelligence that there was some sort of a SARS-like, MERS-like virus going around in China. Now, you know, MERS is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. That's it's a SARS coronavirus, as the COVID virus is, and as the original SARS virus is. And we didn't know exactly what it was, but we knew it was bad. We knew it had the potential to kill people, as the other two SARS viruses have. So it's going to be real interesting to watch how this plays out. I was looking at some of the right-wing news this morning and, you know, things about, oh, you know, the liberals are all schadenfreude. I'm not at all schadenfreude. I'm not sitting here going, oh, yeah, isn't it great? He got, you know, none of that. Number one, anytime the president of the United States is ill, critically ill, or has the potential to be critically ill, it's a national security crisis. If we care about our country, we have to be concerned about that. There are countries that, you know, are not our friends, who wish us harm, and who would try to exploit something like that, number one. Number two, if this goes the way that it most likely will for Donald Trump, the percentage of people who die from COVID, who are over 70, between 70 and 80 years old, who get COVID and then die, is a little short of 6%. It's higher than other people, but, you know, in fact, it's massively higher than children. But it's around 6%. The numbers are all over the map. I wrote a lengthy article about this that you can find easily on the internet, breaking down all the science that we've got in COVID. It was published, Raw Story and Alternate. I'm not sure if it's still on those sites any longer because they tend to roll fairly fast. About half of people, more or less, between 40 and 60% of people who get the virus, who test positive for the virus, never show any symptoms. Of the people who do show symptoms, 100% of the people who eventually die are in the category of people who show symptoms. Roughly 6% death rate for people in their 70s of everybody. That means you've got a roughly 12% death rate of people who are showing symptoms, if I'm doing my math right. And I'm probably not. I'm not an epidemiologist. This is just kind of 
trying to use logic here, which means the odds are nine out of 10 at the worst that Donald Trump will recover from this. And this is the message that the White House is putting out is, you know, most people who get this recover from it. And the first lady is not symptomatic. Donald Trump apparently has mild cold symptoms. He was tired yesterday and had a raw throat. But the odds are he's going to recover from it. Most people do, even people in their 70s. If the 25th Amendment gets invoked, if Donald Trump gets seriously ill and therefore cannot be making decisions or can't interact with people, and I think you could even build a case that it should be invoked right now because he can't sit in a room with his cabinet. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is, you know, we've all seen Zoom calls and Skype calls and stuff like that. So, you know, he probably has no problem doing that. They've got great technology in the White House. But if he gets sicker and the 25th Amendment gets invoked, which is not uncommon, I think it's happened three or four times since it was originally passed back in, as I recall, the early 70s. I think the 25th Amendment was passed after Kennedy was killed. And If that happens and Mike Pence becomes the acting president, and typically it's happened when a president was short-term sick, when Reagan got shot, you know, stuff like that. He's unconscious. He's going through surgery. Well, somebody's got to be in charge, right? Some presidents have even had surgical procedures, and so, you know, we do this. But if Mike Pence is president for even 10 minutes, does he pardon the entire Trump crime family? And, of course, we all know that that pardon will not extend to state prosecution. So it's going to get very interesting. Now, particularly people in their 70s or people over 60, actually, is most of the data has been compiled over 60, under 60, or over 65, under 65. But where I was going with that is that a lot of folks like this, and this was the article that I wrote a couple days ago about this, is that a lot of these people are suffering long-term consequences of it. It's a vascular disease. It's not a lung disease. It, it inflames the vascular system, the arteries, veins, and capillaries. And therefore, it can damage any organ in the body. It can cause strokes, heart damage. In fact, we've seen examples of it causing heart damage in young athletes. They found in this one study that about a third of college-age athletes who got COVID, and these were not people who, none of them were hospitalized, but about a third of them had measurable heart damage on an echocardiogram, ultrasound, taking a look at the heart. That could be a problem. But I think that the thing that concerns me most is that this becomes a Jer Bolsonaro kind of scenario. Jer Bolsonaro, I believe he's 56 years old. I, I could be wrong. But he's the president of Brazil. And a few months ago, he got coronavirus. He was sick for a week or so, and then he, he's done with it. And he came out afterwards, having survived it, and said, you know, the fact that I survived this is proof that what I've been saying all along, there's no there there. This isn't a disease you have to worry about. There's nothing. It's just a bad cold. I had a bad case of the flu. Therefore, go about your life. And this is why Brazil is, they've got mass graves going on all over the country. So, you know, this could be a great wake up for the country and for Trump supporters, or it could end up hardening their position. It's really hard to tell how this plays out. I've, I've also seen all over the Internet, you know, these conspiracy theories that this is, you know, this is classically Atwater, right? He's just, you know, he wants to divert the attention of us all away from how terribly he did at the debate and, and uh, you know, this, that, and the other, how bad the economy is and et cetera. I don't think so. I'm not going there. The main thing that people are positing is that this might be his way of getting out of debates. 
number one, if that was the case, it would have leaked by now. And number two, it's like, we really don't need to go there. I get it. This is a White House that has lied to us repeatedly. Louise and I watched the rest of the Comey case last night on Showtime, I think it is. And what an amazing three-hour TV series. I mean, just astonishing about what Comey went through with Trump and the whole Russia thing. Just breathtaking. And you get it, that this White House is literally capable of anything, and lying through their teeth is certainly up at the top of that list. So we've lost a lot of trust and faith in them. But I think that we can take this seriously. Come on. I mean, there's no need to get crazy about this. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is Jean Ross, an acute care nurse and co-president of National Nurses United. NationalNursesUnited.org is the website and National Nurses is the Twitter handle. You would think that during an epidemic that the public health services of the United States and of the various states would be working really, really hard to get really good, clean data on what's going on so you can do your best to mitigate the damage of the pandemic, you know, solve the problems of people who, have, you know, who are exposed to this. What's actually going on? Well, um, as you probably have read in our Sins of Omission report, We need data that's transparent and accurate and timely, but what we're running into is data that's been neglected, it's been hidden, and it's been manipulated politically to give people outcomes they want. And of course, you know, our practice is based on science, and the virus doesn't care how you report it. The virus is going to do what it's going to do. So with this piecemeal patchwork system we've got here instead of a real public health care system, our nurses and other health care workers are dying, and they're dying in large numbers, and we apparently have been the only ones keeping track of it. I remember a month or so ago that I had read a statistic that over a 1,000 doctors, nurses, and other frontline health care professionals had died. Where are we at right now? Well, the estimate that we have is probably tragically underreported, too, because of, of the data being manipulated. We think 1,718 healthcare workers, and that includes RNs. So 213 of those are RNs. Of those, 58.2% are nurses of color, 124 of them. Mm. So even in our profession, which is just, oh, like a quarter nurses of color, they still are dying in larger rates than than people in the general population. That's mind-boggling. What should we be doing? Well, what we need is, I actually have a list for us here. We need daily reporting of data, and it has to be cumulative totals. And it has to be- Didn't we used to have that? Forgive the interruption, but didn't we used to have that? The CDC, when it was under the CDC, yes, but they've taken it away from the CDC. Then they have given it to private companies, two in particular that we know of, and then they sign these non-disclosure agreements, and so they say everything is proprietary, so the public can't know, we can't know, those of us that are getting sick and dying can't know. And so, yes, we did used to have that. We need daily reporting on healthcare worker infections and deaths, both at an establishment level, like the hospital or business. And then we need data on symptomatic cases 
Um, we've got employers that are like, no matter what your symptoms are, if you tested negative. And keep in mind, there have been, I've never heard yet of a false positive. I have heard of false negatives because the tests are not standardized. And if you, depending on what time you test a person, they may test negative, but they really are uh, in the throes of infection. So we need that data. Uh, We need to know how many people are hospitalized. The deaths have to be reported at national, state, and county level. We need to know the hospital capacity data, and again, at those three levels, and it has to be updated in real time. It has to include total and available beds and by type, like ICU, med surge, telemetry. We have to know staffing. We have to know healthcare worker exposures and infections, what we call hospital-acquired nosocomial infections, patient infections. We need all that, and we do need data on the stock and supply chain of the essential PPE, the personal protective equipment. That has to be reported to it. And more than anything, we need this president to invoke the Defense Production Act and to do that temporary emergency infectious disease standard so that employers will be told, you must have these protections in place if you expect your nurses and other healthcare workers to show up on the job and deal with patients during this time of the COVID pandemic. We're talking with Jean Ross, the co-president of National Nurses United, nationalnursesunited.org, of course, the website, about the widespread failure to track and report data on COVID-19 deaths, testing, and infections. Am I correct in assuming, Jean, that there is literally no public health explanation for why the Trump administration and a number of states are choosing to conceal or or otherwise make unavailable this information that the only possible reason is that Trump doesn't want things to seem as bad as they are so that people will feel good and go out and vote for him in the election? Our deduction is that there's that, but there's also this either or, the economy or the health of the public thing that they've set up. And um, what's really sad is you will, like other countries, get back to the economy that you want faster if you do these things we're talking about. And and that's why right. scientists, doctors, us nurses are, are exhorting people, please, you listen to us when you're ill, you trust us, please do these things, and then you can get up and running. But the way things are now, it's going to hang around for longer and longer. We are going to continue to lose more people than any other country on the face of the earth because of the refusal to listen and do the right thing. Yeah, it's damn breathtaking. Gene Ross, the co-president of National Nurses United. Gene, thank you so much for dropping by and keep up the great work. Thank you. I wanted to share something with you that I, I found in the New York Times that was an article by Gretchen Reynolds that was a summary of some really, really good science that was done recently. And I'll give you a little personal background story on this. This is a kind of an upbeat and hopeful and optimistic thing. Back in the 80s, I had a, I guess you could call him kind of a spiritual mentor. His name was Gottfried Miller. He was a German mystic. 
And we were walking through the forests in Germany one day in, in Studsteinach. We were walking along about 70, 80 feet up on a path, looking down over the Steinach River. And it was just forest all around us. It was in the fall. The leaves were mostly fallen. We stopped on the trail, and he just looked at the river down below us and all the trees around us and all the color, you know, it was orange and reds and yellows, and on the, most of it was on the floor of the forest, but there was still some on the trees, and there were some squirrels jumping around, and, and the river was gurgling and making all this noise that little rivers make. He held his hands out to it and turned to me and said, isn't this extraordinary? And I looked at it and thought, yeah, it's a pretty landscape. And he was like, this is creation. Isn't it amazing that we are alive right now to see this? And he's now passed away, so it's like, you know, my memory is like doubly extraordinary. And I was like, yeah. And I started looking at it with new eyes. And then he said, you know, and all this stuff around us, even when it's like going dormant like trees in the winter, it's all alive. And I'm looking at this forest and it suddenly hit me and the river and everything else that it's literally all alive. Even the stuff that seems dead, you know, like the rocks and the, and the hillside. When I, well, the hillside is filled with explicit life. But arguably, our entire planet is like a living thing within a living universe. And it just washed over me. What an amazing thing. And then as we were walking back, as we were walking, you know, another mile or two back through the forest, back toward where we lived, we passed, as we would pass these little bushes that would kind of brush up against the trail in the German forest, he was constantly touching the leaves and saying, hello, little bush, how are you? And so I started touching the, the bushes and going, hi, how are you? And thinking, you know, I was just, you know, doing what he was doing. And then it struck me, they're alive too. And then we stopped again and we were just toward the end of the river there. And, and he said, you know, we are God's eyes. This is how whoever, whatever created this universe, this is how it experiences its own creation. This is how God sees his own creation, was his phrase. I would de-anthropomorphize it slightly. And he said, therefore, we have an obligation to take pictures of this world for its creator. So we need to start noticing what we're seeing. And I've been doing that literally since then, since, since whatever year that was, probably 79 or 80, it was right around then. And I find it so valuable to me for my own mental health to several times a day, every day, try to look outside or even just look around me and just say, wow, I'm alive. It's amazing. What an extraordinary world. So now we get to the story in the New York Times, uh, Gretchen Reynolds writing about awe walks, A-W-E, awe looking at the world and going, wow. Well, this was an actual scientific study. They got two groups of volunteers. These are people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And both groups, they had them take a walk. Now, we know that when people regularly take walks, they have less depression, less anxiety, and better health just from, you know, walking a mile every day. That simple thing really does that. And so they wanted to make sure that comparing apples to apples. So both groups took a walk, an essentially identical walk every day. But one group was instructed to do what Herr Miller instructed me to do, which is to look at the world with a sense of wonder and awe, to notice things during the walk that would inspire them, that would surprise them, that would, that would cause them to be reminded of just how extraordinary it is that we're alive. I mean, you know, the cemetery down the road for me is filled with people who'd probably give almost anything for one minute of just taking a deep breath and looking around at this world, right? 
Just an amazing thing. And here's what they found. This is mind-boggling. They did it for eight weeks. These people were encouraged to participate, share on Facebook or on social media their experiences and to take pictures of themselves throughout this. Here's what they found. After eight weeks, the scientists compared the group's responses in photos. This is from the, the piece in the New York Times by Gretchen Reynolds. Not surprisingly, they found that the awe walkers, A-W-E, seem to have become adept at discovering and amplifying awe. One volunteer reported focusing on, quote, the beautiful fall colors in the absence of them among the evergreen forest, end quote. A control walker, in contrast, said she spent much of a recent walk fretting about an upcoming vacation and all the things I have to do before we leave. They also found a small but significant differences in the group's sense of well-being. The awe walkers felt happier, less upset, and more socially connected than the men and women in the control group, who were also walking. More startling, and this is where it gets really amazing, when they were looking at the pictures these people were taking of themselves during this eight-week period, because they were encouraged, while you're taking your walks or whatever, you know, just take pictures. More startling, the researchers noticed a variance in the group's selfies. Over the course of the eight weeks, the size of awe walkers' countenances, in other words, their face relative to the rest of the picture, shrank in relation to the scenery around them. Their faces grew smaller the world larger. Nothing similar occurred in the photos of the control group. Now, this is a real, measurable, objective, solid scientific indicator here that these people were actually significantly, measurably improving their own mental health. It's extraordinary. Sponsoring the interview this week is... Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So New Mexico getting a radioactive waste dump. It's amazing that we're even still having these conversations. We've been debating this stuff since the 1960s. Kevin Camps is on the line with us. He's the nuclear waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Tell us about this. The irradiated nuclear fuel, highly radioactive waste, is the same stuff that exploded and burned at Chernobyl. You know, they were in thick armored vehicles, right? And they were worried about getting killed through the armor. So, yeah, these containers they'd use for shipping the waste 
from mostly eastern reactors out to New Mexico, yeah, it's thick wall, but is it thick enough to survive a severe accident? Is it thick enough to survive a terrorist attack? Likelihood is no. They're probably going to have breaches and release contents, and it's going to be a radiological catastrophe. They're talking about shipping yeah. 10,000 giant containers out to New Mexico from eastern reactors and parking them in southeastern New Mexico, and chances are it'll just stay there at the surface forever. And uh, how are they going to be shipped? Is this by truck or by rail car? And what are the dangers associated with it? They say mostly rail because these containers are so big. They're 180 tons in weight, so they can't go down the interstate highways. They're too heavy. So it's mostly rail, but there's 2,000-plus reactors in the country that lack direct rail access. So they're going to have to use either heavy-haul trucks or barges on that front leg to get the waste to the nearest railhead, put it on a train, ship it out to New Mexico. In place like Michigan, those barge shipments are on Lake Michigan, into the port of Muskegon, on the Wisconsin side, into the port of Milwaukee. If one of these things goes down and releases its contents into Lake Michigan, that's going to poison the drinking water supply for 40 million people in two countries and a large number of Native American First Nations. There's a total of 129 commercial reactors, and fortunately, a lot of them have shut down. Not enough. There are still 94 operating. And at every one of these 129 commercial reactors in the country, they are still sitting on most or all of the high-level radioactive waste they've ever generated. And that's our preferred alternative to this insane Holtec plan in New Mexico is hardened on-site storage. And where that's not safe enough, then near site, as near as possible to the point of generation, to buy us some time to figure out what to do long-term. But instead, they just want to rush into this mobile Chernobyl campaign and stick it to New Mexico, which has already gotten it, you know, for 75 years, ever since Los Alamos set up shop, ever since the Trinity blast, it's been nuclear colonialism and radioactive racism for the people of New Mexico who are majority minority. They are Latinx, they are indigenous, they are black, the minority is white. So guess where they're choosing to ship all of the high level radioactive commercial waste in the country. Amazing. And tell us about the part of New Mexico where they want to put this stuff and what are they just going to store it in, in drums on the desert? I mean, I, how do they do this? Well, these canisters are stainless steel. They are thin-walled, so you need radiation shielding around these canisters, or you're going to get a fatal dose of radiation, just like in that Chernobyl testimony you read. So Holtec's plan is to dig pits in the desert floor and lower these things down in there. They've had problems with that process at San Onofre, California, for example. They almost dropped one. It's like a 20-foot drop, and it could have breached the canister if they had at San Onofre a couple years ago. So it's a very problematic plan. Uh, The environmental injustice is immense. So you've got a group like Alliance for Environmental Strategies, a Latinx uh, environmental justice group in southeastern New Mexico. The NRC licensing uh, panel would not even recognize their legal standing in the proceeding. So the NRC proceedings are an environmental injustice. And what do you got in that neck of the woods? You got uranium enrichment at Urenco, right in Eunice, New Mexico. You've got waste control specialists, national low-level radioactive waste dump a few miles away in West Texas. You've got the waste isolation pilot plant. That's military plutonium disposal, all in this little neck of the woods with plans for more nuclear facilities. But this Holtec high-level radioactive waste dump, it would be the biggest such dump in the world, is, you know, just the biggest environmental injustice of all. And that's saying something.
There was a lot of organized opposition to doing this to Nevada back in the day, back when Harry Reid was <laughs> from Nevada, was uh, running the Senate. Is there organized opposition to this? I mean, is, is this a done deal or is this something in process? And if so, how could people insert themselves into that process? It's in process. Uh, today is the last day for public comment on this proposal. And uh, so comments are going into the Nuclear Regulatory Commission by the thousands. At our homepage, beyondnuclear.org, we have simple web forms you can use to, you know, file your individual comments. We also have groups signing on to a coalition letter. We're over 100 groups now across the country. And with such efforts, we stopped the yucca dump for the past 33 years. Incredibly, Holtec and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission are assuming that yucca is still going to be the permanent repository. That's how they justify calling this plan in New Mexico interim or temporary. Yucca is not happening. And so this New Mexico dump is going to become de facto permanent surface storage. I call it a parking lot dump. Is this above the uh, Ogallala Aquifer? I mean, is there, if one of these things breaches in addition to the risk on the surface, is there an underground risk as well? There are aquifers beneath this New Mexico site. In fact, there are surface water bodies. Uh, Laguna Gatuna and Laguna Plata are immediately adjacent. So there are surface and groundwater impacts. Yoglala is not far away. And in fact, that waste control specialist, low-level radioactive waste dump in Texas, 40 miles from this Holtec site, has also proposed a high-level radioactive waste consolidated interim storage facility. And WCS is right on top of the Oglala. They uh, changed the paperwork in their license application to make it look like the Oglala had moved. I mean, the Oglala fluctuates with rainfall <laughs> over time. It is right above the Oglala. So it would put eight states' uh, groundwater at risk from, you know, Texas up to South Dakota. The Oglala Aquifer is named after the Oglala Lakota in South Dakota. That's how far that aquifer extends. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's a big chunk of the central part of the United States. We're talking with Kevin Camps, the nuclear waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. Kevin, you said that the that your preferred, and I assume, you know, when you said our, you're referring to beyond nuclear, but that your preferred way of dealing with the nuclear waste that's being produced by the nuclear power industry right now is on-site, secure, safe storage. What does that look like? And is that safe? We've got 200 groups from all 50 states who have endorsed hardened on-site storage. And what it looks like is get the irradiated nuclear fuel out of the pools to prevent catastrophic fires that are possible. And then put it into dry casks, yes, but dry casks that are well-designed, well-made, and then fortified against attacks, safeguarded against accidents, monitored for radiation, pressure, and temperature. None of that is going on. We're taking huge risks with the storage right now. And even if this New Mexico dump opened today, it would take decades to move all the waste out there. That means decades of risk at the reactor sites, inevitably. So why not do it right at the reactor sites? That's what we've been calling for for 20 years at this point. Are they proposing to do this on tribal land? Yes, the Mescalero Apache are nearby, and the Comanche have holdings. The Hopi have holdings down there. This is tribal land. Amazing. Amazing. Kevin Camps, nuclear waste specialist at Beyond Nuclear. You can get over to beyondnuclear.org today and register your objections about this with the NRC. Kevin, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking to you.
That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.